0: Hello everyone. Um, It's so nice to see so many of you here. I know that we've got some extremely well-qualified panellists here, so I'm going to keep what I say to a minimum, Um, but I just want to say thank you to Durham Book Festival for organising suitably Scandinavian moody weather today. Um, (laughs) It's less cold than I thought it would be, but otherwise I think it's a very sort of dramatic backdrop in which to hold this discussion. Um, What's going to happen is I'm going to give a short introduction to each of our uh, wonderful panellists. They're then going to do a reading, each from their um, relevant books. After that, we'll have a sort of informal discussion about some of the issues and then i will turn over to you for some questions um, at the end for the last 50 minutes or so and after that there will be a chance to get your book signed um, so i'd first like to start by welcoming anne Cleves, um, who as many of you i'm sure already know is a best-selling crime novelist whose books often take inspiration from the landscape and character of the northeast where she lives um, she's probably best known for her fantastic series featuring the sharp-minded, pie-munching detective um, Vera Stanhope, an unforgettable character, of course, brought to life on TV by Brenda Levin. Um, although Anne's novels have been translated into over 20 languages, her past jobs include, I believe, woman's refuge officer, bird observatory cook, and auxiliary coast card. Her latest book is a great read. It features Vera Stanhope and it's called The Glass Room. But today, Anne is going to read from one of her Shetland mysteries um, because she described the location to me in an email as as close to Nordic Noir as we can get in the UK. Secondly, we have Barry Forshaw, a writer and journalist whose books include The Rough Guide to Crime Fiction, as well as the first UK biography of Stieg Larsson. I hope I pronounced that correctly. That's close enough. Okay. (laughs) Um, He appears regularly on television and is a former vice chair of the Crime Writers Association. His latest book, Death in a Cold Climate, is a comprehensive guide to Nordic crime fiction, packed full of insights into the genre. At one point in the book, he suggests, intriguingly, that the success of Nordic crime writers in Britain might have something to do with, quote, their casual acceptance of eccentricity. So no doubt that appeals to us Brits. And lastly, we have David Hewson. He's the author of 22 books, including the popular Nick Costa crime series set in Rome. Born in Yorkshire, David left school at 17 to become a cub reporter on his local newspaper and later was a staff reporter on The Times as well as helping to launch The Independent. David's novelization of the Danish TV series The Killing has been widely acclaimed with one reviewer calling it far more than a cheap tie-in. Lesser Who Done It in Houston's hands, more a series of interlinked human tragedies. It really is an amazing accomplishment to have taken that TV series and made something new and relevant out of it. Um, so please welcome our panel. <laughs> so Barry, perhaps I can start by asking you to kick okay. off with your reading.
1: Well, it's just a very short section. It's just literally the opening. The Scandinavian literary invasion is complete, at least in terms of crime fiction produced in Nordic countries. Now, in sympathetic translations, the fiction is jostling for pole position with often resentful British and American authors. I'm not sure that these two are resentful, but we can ask them. You are are resentful. (laughs) (laughs) The Vikings made bloody sorties against Britain in the era when storytelling was largely an oral form. Thirteen centuries later, however, the descendants of those ruthless pillagers now make their mark, not with axes, but with computer keyboards. And the only thing I'd say is that in the book, I did try to talk to every single living Scandinavian crime writer. I didn't get to Stieg Larsson. (laughs) I somehow missed him. Thank you.
0: Next we're going to have Anne's reading.
2: For those of you who don't know the Shetland books, I thought I'd start right at the beginning of the first Shetland book and do look out for the adaptation, which will be on BBC, I think, something like the second week of December. And it was filmed in Shetland, so you get a a good good idea, I think, of the place from that. Twenty past one in the morning on New Year's Day. Magnus knew the time because of the fat clock his mother's clock, which squatted on the shelf over the fire. In the corner, the raven in the wicker cage muttered and croaked in its sleep. Magnus waited. The room was prepared for visitors, the fire banked with peat, and on the table, a bottle of whiskey and the ginger cake he'd bought in Safeways the last time he was in Lerwick. He could feel himself dozing, but he didn't want to go to bed in case someone should arrive full of laughter and drams and stories. For eight years, nobody had visited to wish him Happy New Year, but still he waited just in case. He must have slept. If he'd been awake, he'd have heard them coming because there was nothing quiet in their approach. They weren't creeping up on him. He'd have heard their laughter and the stumbling, seen the wild swaying of the torch beam through the uncurtained window. He was woken by the banging on the door, came to with a start knowing he'd been in the middle of a nightmare, but not shorter of the details. Come in, he shouted, come in, come in. He struggled to his feet, stiff and aching. They must already be in the storm porch, he heard the hiss of their whispers. The door was pushed open, letting in a blast of freezing air and two young girls who were as gaudy and brightly coloured as exotic birds. He saw they were drunk. They stood propping each other up. They weren't dressed for the weather, yet their cheeks were flushed, and he could feel the health of them like heat. One was fair and one was dark. The fair one was the prettier, round and soft, but Magnus noticed the dark one first. Her black hair was streaked with luminescent blue. More than anything, he would have liked to reach out and touch her hair, but he knew better than to do that. He would only scare them away. "'Come in,' he said again. Although they were already in the room, he thought he must sound like a foolish old man, repeating the same words, making no sense at all. People had always laughed at him. They called him slow, and perhaps they were right. He felt a smile crawl across his face and heard his mother's words in his head. "'Will you wipe that stupid grin from your face?' Do you want folk to think you're dafter than you really are? The girls giggled and stepped further into the room. He shut the doors behind them. He wanted to keep out the cold, and he was frightened that they might escape. He couldn't believe that such beautiful creatures had turned up on his doorstep. And I write crime fiction, so you know that one of those three people will die by the end (laughs) of the next chapter.
0: Not the girl with the blue hair, that's um, Thank you, that was so evocatively rendered. Um, and David, can I ask you to read from your adaptation of The Killing?
3: This is um, my version of the opening scene. For those of you who've seen The Killing on TV, a young girl running through the woods, which I think is an absolutely crucial image that repeats itself throughout the series and through my book. And for me, it begins like this. Friday the 31st of October, Through the dark wood where the dead trees give no shelter, Nana Birk Larsen runs. Nineteen, breathless, shivering in her skimpy torn slip, bare feet stumbling in the clinging mud. Cruel roots snag her ankles, snarling branches tear her pale and flailing arms. She falls, she clambers, she struggles out of vile dank gullies, trying to still her chattering teeth, to think, to hope, to hide, There is a bright monocular eye that follows, like a hunter after a wounded deer. It moves in a slow approaching zigzag, marching through the Pinciscovan wasteland through the Pentecost forest. Bare silver trunks rise from barren soil like limbs of ancient corpses frozen in their final throes. Another fall, the worst. The ground beneath her vanishes and with it her legs hands windmilling, crying out in pain and despair. The girl crashes into the filthy, filthy, ice-cold ditch, collides with rocks and logs, paddles through sharp and cutting gravel, feels her head and hands, her elbows, her knees, graze the hard, invisible terrain that lurks below. The chill water, the fear, his presence not so far away. She staggers, gasping out of the mire, clambers up the bank, splays her naked, torn, and bleeding feet against the swampy ground to gain some purchase from the sludge between her toes. At the ridge ahead, she finds a tree, some last few leaves of autumn brush against her face. The trunk is larger than its piers, and as her arms fall round it, she thinks of Tice, her father, a giant of a man, silent, morose, a staunch and stoic bulwark against the world outside. She grips the tree, clutches at it as once she clutched him, his strength with hers, hers with his. Nothing more was ever needed, ever would be. From the limitless sky falls a low-pitched whine, the bright all-seeing lights of a jet escaping the bounds of gravity, fleeing Kastrup, fleeing Denmark. Its fugitive presence dazzles and blinds. In the, in the unforgiving brilliance, Nana Birk Larsen's fingers stray to her face, Feel the wound running from her left eye to her cheek, vicious, open, bleeding. She can smell him, feel him, on her, in her. Through all the pain, amidst the fear, rises a hot and sudden flame of fury. Your are Tice Birk Larsen's daughter. They all said that when she gave them reason. Your are Nana Birk Larsen, Tice's child, Pernille's too, and you shall escape the monster in the night, chasing through the Pentecost forest, on the fringes of the city where, a few long miles away, lies that warm safe place called home. She stands and grips the trunk as once she gripped her father, arms round the splintering silver bark, shiny slips stained with dirt and blood, shivering, quiet, convincing herself salvation lies ahead, beyond the dark wood and the dead trees that give no shelter. A white beam ranges over her again, It is not the flood of illumination falling from the belly of a plane that flies above this wasteland like a vast mechanical angel idly looking for a lost stray soul to save. Run, Nana, run, A voice cries. Run, Nana, run, she thinks. There is one torchlight on her now, the single blazing eye, and it is here. Thank you. Gosh,
0: thank you so much for that, all three of you. Um, I think that's set the atmosphere beautifully, actually. And um, I wondered if I could start off with quite a broad question, because I know that many of us here, myself included, have loved the TV adaptations of The Killing and The Bridge, which original TV drama, and also the works of Henning Mankell and seeing Volander as I believe you pronounce it, on screen. And I just wondered, I mean, there have been crime writers from the Nordic region for decades, and what is it, do you think, that's made it especially popular in the last few years. I mean, Barry, could you start off with your thoughts on that?
1: I think you could contrast it with Camilleri. I presume people are watching Montalbano. A few nodding. That's so different. We watch that and we see that beautiful lifestyle. We see people having wonderful meals, looking out at the ocean. Everything is warm and beautiful. That's not the real world. We don't respond so much to that Latin, Italian world. The way we do to cold grey skies, and all the elements in all those Scandinavian things, for instance in Borgen, which I know it's not crime fiction, but it's a political thriller, they've got uh, a government, a coalition government, who hate each other's guts, <laughs> but openly they have to give the appearance that everything is hunky-dory, we, re- we recognise that, and we recognise so much in Scandinavian crime fiction, it's sufficiently different, but sufficiently the same.
0: That's interesting, because, David, obviously, you've written books set in Italy, and and we were talking a bit earlier about how the adaptation of The Killing has moved your fiction in a different direction. So,
3: You know, know, I think tastes change over the years. We used to read books to cheer ourselves up, but now we read them to wallow in our misery. (laughs) Um, And I I mean that quite seriously. I think we, we are going through very gloomy times. We've got the economy. We've got, you know, global warming and... Mitt Romney, you know, there are lots of reasons to be worried. Um, and uh, I think people genuinely find some kind of link in stuff that says, you know, it is really bad right now. I, I, I find it difficult because I like stories that have an element of at least a promise of redemption in them. and I have put a tiny little bit of redemption into one of the many changes I put into the killing because I felt it, it, it needed it. But, you know, that poss- possibly the zeitgeist at the moment, it's just saying, you know, it's it's like John Laurie and Dad's Army, we're all doomed. <laughs> um, and uh, I, you know, so I kind of disagree with with Barry there, and I think that the the nature of reading has changed a little bit, and people identify more with darkness than they with overall darkness, rather than with darkness within light, which is what we had with Mediterranean stories. And, um, and Scandinavia is a way we can tell really dark stories without having them quite on our doorstep.
0: Do you agree with that, Anne?
2: I think we still do like that that resolution, though, that sense that things might be all right at the end. And I think you were probably right to do that with the story, to bring just a little bit of redemption in. I think in, I'm, I'm quite heartened because I write very traditional crime novels that traditional crime fiction has always done well in times of depression. So the 1930s, even people who are out of work and struggling were enjoying Agatha Christie. And in the 80s, we were all reading, I don't know, P.D. James, I guess. And so I'm hoping that that there will be a return to traditional crime fiction now, Mm -hmm. that we'll want that that sense of things coming right in the end and some sort of hope and resolution. I hope so. But I agree that, that winter and dark and bleak nights are such a brilliant background for, for crime fiction. We got it in, in the sagas, but we get it in fairy tales too, and it's that, that background that's wonderful.
0: Is there a sense that uh, in the Nordic region, crime fiction has been taken more seriously in the past than it has been perhaps over here? And do you, feel, do you feel that we've maybe not looked at crime fiction writers as, as you know, proper great authors in the yeah, past? Yeah, and,
2: and, and certainly they, they tackled political issues probably before the crime writers here did. So I I loved listening to the first of the Martin Beck adaptations on Radio 4 on Saturday afternoon. I don't know if anybody heard those, but if you've not read Martin Beck, he really was the first, uh, first Scandinavian detective and he's very political. The, 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 the husband and wife team who wrote him, and you can pronounce them, and I'm not <laughs> going to attempt to.
1: Are there any Swedes in the audience before <laughs> I do? Sherbal and Balu. Yes.
2: We're, we're very political. And, and what struck me was that it was so feminist, that, that play on Saturday afternoon, Rosanna. Amazing for the time that it was written.
1: But Anne is maybe being uh, a bit. Uh, Saving her blushes here, to take Elizabeth's point. I don't think British crime writing was taken that seriously. These two are fairly, taken fairly seriously and reviewed as literary writers. Not every British crime writer is. Scandinavian crime fiction arrives in translation. That instantly gives it a cachet of being something literary and more serious.
3: Well, no, I have to say, when I'd been in Denmark, and I spent a lot of time in Denmark doing this, quite a lot of Danes said to me, you know, this is just Pulp fiction." I mean, I got the impression they don't take it that no, seriously. Don't. Whereas in Italy, um, crime fiction is called jally, which means yellow. they were from the yellow jackets of the books. And that is taken very, very seriously. But personally, I don't care whether the people take me seriously, not at all. I just hope they write and read and enjoy the books. And that's, that's the only thing that matters.
1: I mean, I'm not in this for some kind of personal cachet, really. Well, Hawk and Nessa says... And he said to me, why do you guys think this is better than your crime writers? Mm. Swedish, Danish writers are not better than the Brits, but you vaguely think they are.
0: It's interesting that you mentioned that about translation because I wondered, when I was watching The Killing, the fact that it was subtitled meant that you had to concentrate and you weren't on Twitter or Facebook or whatever social network you prefer. You had to really concentrate on the drama and, and as a drama, it doesn't speak down to its audience. There's some quite complicated stuff and some interesting characters that aren't just black or white. David, do you think that that's part of the appeal? I, th-
3: I think that's a really interesting question and if The Killing had been... God forbid sub, um, dubbed, it would have been an absolute failure. Instead it had those subtitles, which frequently are awful. I mean, it's as if somebody's run something through Google Translate, you know. <laughs> and, you know, I, I had access to people who can sometimes say, you know, what are they really saying? It often was quite di- different. Um, so they're not even great renditions of the original dialogue. And for the book, I invented my own dialogue anyway, because the scripts had been lost, there was nothing to refer to. Um, But, yeah, I think it changed the relationship, having subtitles. It made you think more about the characters. And the acting was so superb in The Killing that it almost made you write the dialogue in your own head. So you had this very intense and strange relationship with it, which we would never have had if it was made in English. Um, it's a bit he's... like writing a novel, isn't it? When we write novels, we
2: try and leave gaps for people to bring their own imagination and their own history and their own experience to the characters. And if you're reading the subtitles, you're maybe allowing the viewer to do that because they're not, they're not seeing everything because they're, they're reading it, the subtitles. In fact,
1: it did change uh, the whole issue and the notion of subtitles were changed by the killing. You'd imagine everyone sitting in this room, nobody in this room, to put it another way, would have problems with subtitles. A lot of British people did. And that's one of the reasons The American, The Killing, is is made at all, because American audiences would not accept the notion of subtitles. I think they have changed. So now we have no problem with The Bridge, Sebastian Bergman, Lily Hammer's a a separate case. But now we read subtitles more readily than we might have done 10 years ago.
0: Um, And Anne, you touched on the fact that um there was a sort of feminist principle to some of the early Scandinavian and Nordic crime fiction. And again, that, that strikes a lot of people as something that's intriguing about these books and these TV adaptations is that um, there are uncomprom- uncompromising female figures who don't subscribe to the sort of stereotypical, um, you know, the glamorous detective. And I know Vera is very much in that tradition. So is that something that you think really grabs us?
2: I hope so, and when I wrote Vera, I was, I suppose, thinking back to the the spinsters that I knew when I grew up, who were, I don't know, hospital matrons or teachers, and they wore tweed skirts with frayed bits at the bottom and flat shoes, and people respected them because they were good at what they did, not what they looked like, and now you get, I don't know, the CSI effect with all those amazingly glamorous forensic scientists with Ridiculous heels and hair that any criminal could just grab hold of if they were chasing them. I mean, just bizarre. And cheekbones—they
1: always have the cheekbones. Oh, amazing
2: cheekbones! Yeah. So, so Vera's a bit of an antidote. A bit, yeah, quite a big antidote to that, I think.
0: And, Barry, do you think that's important? I mean, at the opening scenes of The Bridge, we were introduced to Sar- Saga, Saga,
1: Saga... <laughs> saga or <Sega. laughs>
0: Um Saga makes it more literary somehow, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, we were introduced to her in quite a sort of full-on way. You know, this is someone who's, who's probably got Asperger's, who's got a very strange relationship to personal um, intimacy.
1: All of that's true, but she's also a reaction to other women in Scandinavian crime fiction. So Sega or Saga would not exist without Lisbeth Salander. So you've got Lisbeth Solander, who is a woman who is a sociopath, can't function on any normal level with other human beings. What do you do? You have to take it even further, which, uh, which is a problem, I think. There's a problem in, in the bridge. How does that woman hold that job down? Anybody think that when you've been watching it? Elizabeth Solander's is a total maverick, and people use elements for her, and she occasionally will allow herself to be used. But I never quite believed that Sega would have a room full of tough cops listening to this woman whose idea of small talk is to talk about her periods. And you think, well, no, no, th- this, this would not work. But she's a terrific character. And Sarah Lund, of course, is, is also simply, as she says in interviews, John Wayne or Clint Eastwood. She deliberately said to Siren's first trip, and David will know this, uh, I don't want anything feminine about this character. I am the male hero. She does always say that, but... Um, sorry, my mic just gone.
3: Uh, she does always say that, but she's Danish, and you must never believe what the Danes tell you. Um, I, I've spent a year working with these people, and they, they you know, they come out with these things. And uh, I mean, Soren said to me, you know, we are talking about TV, and he said, you know, the TV series. I really like the British TV series. Midsummer Murders. Because <laughs> I live in the countryside. Is it, is it like that? And I said, yes, sir, and it's exactly <laughs> like that. We have one a week, you know. So, I, I mean, the whole John Wayne thing, I think there's a part of that. But the thing I really like about Lund is that so many of our um, you know, male detectives, I mean, no one here would dream of doing this, but they are just simply Marlowe rewritten. So you have this damaged, middle-aged, melancholic, middle-aged Guy who's incredibly attractive to women, even though he doesn't wash, has a bottle of whiskey in his drawer, Um, and you know that's been rewritten and rewritten. And this idea that you have to have this savior of the world who's damaged in some way um, is is such a cliche. Now Lund is fascinating because we can see that she's damaged. We don't know why she's damaged. But she thinks she's normal, and it's the rest of the world that's screwed. And it makes her a very, very interesting character in that she has absolutely no compunction about harming people, being awful to her own family, in pursuit of the killer of Nana Beer larsen And yet we still find that slightly sympathetic somehow because of the wonderful acting involved. And that's a very original way to do it, and I cannot... See that that would have come out of a British tradition somehow. I don't, you know, the BBC, God knows, you know, if they'd invented a crime series, they could never have come up with a character like that, I don't think.
0: How difficult was it for you to adapt that TV series? I mean, how many times did you have to watch the thing?
3: Oh, please, please. (laughs) Um, Before I wrote a word, I spent a couple of months going over to Copenhagen, just get, because I'd never set foot in Denmark. I watched every minute of those 20 hours and wrote down a synopsis of every scene because, as I said, there was no script. It was five or six years old, and TV, they just destroy everything. Once they've made it, they just throw it all away. Um, so I, I spent two or three months just writing down every scene um, before I even started working. And I need to understand the structure because TV is very structured. It has what they call A, B, and C storylines. So the A storyline is who killed Nana, the B storyline is, how will that wonderful family, Tyson, Pernille, survive? The C storyline is the politician. And once I got the structure, then I could kind of work at it. But uh, it was a fascinating exercise in dealing with a different medium as a book.
0: Do you know if Sophie Grubble has read it?
3: I gather, yes, I, I think so. I think so, and I know Soren has, because Soren's written a foreword for Two, which is out in January. But they were incredibly generous. You know, they, I, I, they when they came to ask me to write it, I said I will write it as so long as you let me change whatever I want, and you don't complain. And I haven't, you have no control over that. And they said, "Fine," which amazed me. But you know, they, they were happy with letting me. Have their baby to perform plastic surgery upon it. <laughs> um,
2: no, it's more like giving it over for adoption.
3: <laughs> giving it over for adoption. Yours, that's a Nature better way nurture. to put it. But no, they, they were very, they were very, very good. I think a couple of Danish writers felt they should have been given the job, but um, mm. they weren't. You know.
0: um, Anne, you obviously have a slightly different perspective on TV adaptation because you have seen your books on the small screen. And what kind of process was that for you? I mean, is is it sort of surreal seeing Vera embodied by yeah. Brenda Blevin?
2: I think I was just very, very lucky because you do you you give up your your baby, and you hand it over to somebody else, and and you have no control at all about what they do with it, about who plays the part that you the character that you've written. But because it it all happened quite slowly, so I got to know the scriptwriter first and took him round. Northumberland, and showed him where I felt that the scenes were set. And then got invited to the read-through, got to see all the scripts. So it, it, it was quite a gradual transformation for me from my Vera into the television Vera. And, and anyway, you have to trust the people who are chosen to do the job, I think. They, they know about television and I don't. And much better, as we were saying earlier, that, that it's a good piece of work in its own sense and in its own form than something that's faithful to the book but is, is a poor piece of television. So,
0: But you were saying that you didn't recognise Brenda Blethyn when you met her because she's actually so different in person. Oh, she's Isn't
2: amazingly you? glamorous, yes. I was going down to London and crossed the, the bridge at Newcastle <laughs> Station and there was this quite small woman waving at me like this. I'm like, Who's that? Walked a bit further, she's still waving like... And, uh, no, it was Brenda looking very glamorous. And um, I thought that was that was pretty poor, that she'd recognise me, but she's a double Oscar nominee and I didn't know who she was. <laughs> Actually,
1: that's true, Sarah Lund, too. So if you meet Sophie Grebel, as David will attest, I'm <laughs> sure, she's this kind of bubbly, humorous, lively, communicative personality. Not like Sarah Lund at all.
0: <laughs> Barry, can I ask you a bit about Stieg and um, How much do you think... Um, because that, for many of us, that was our first introduction, really, to this sort of Scandi genre. Um, and how much do you think that was as a result of the extraordinary story around his life and the, mm-hmm. the sort of dispute following his tragic death?
1: Well, I got cut off at the knees by being on a stage like this, sitting on a stage with Eva Gaden, who is his his editor, and I made the point that there are three, three reasons why Stieg Larsson is so successful that he created a totally original heroine, although you can argue that she isn't, that uh, he was dead at 50, so he didn't live to see the success. It's rather like, um, I don't know, Bizet, when, when Carmen was performed, it was a flop. Bizet didn't live to see Carmen become a hit. That's always astonishing when somebody hasn't lived long enough to see their own success. And the fact of this astonishing dispute after his death, which I think interests people. Uh, I think people, is, and it's still ongoing, the fact that Eva Gabriels and his partner, has written her own book about the dispute now. People presumably know that she got no money and the father and brother have had all, the, uh, had all the estates. But she says that Stiglash now visits her in the form of a crow and speaks to her in the garden. I'm not sure she's right to go down this route. <laughs> Personally, I'd say leave the crow business alone.
3: Is the crow
1: dictating the new book? That, that would be quite cool. The new book has a title, God's Vengeance. It's set in Canada. There is, you page your money and you take your joints, there's a, a quarter bit written. The trouble is the rights belong to the father and brother. The book appears to be in the possession of Eva. And as they don't speak, we are not likely to see L- Elizabeth Solander fall for some time.
0: David, I know that you um, were a journalist for many, many years and, um, and a very good one at that. And um, The Killing, um, the way you write it, is so incredibly sort of taught and well-paced and stripped back. And I wondered how much did it help being a journalist beforehand? Was it, was it a help or a hindrance when it comes to sort of writing
3: fiction? Uh, the typing helps, being able <laughs> to type. But really, the, all of the things that make... You, fiction work are the things that get you fired in journalism, you know, because it's to do with lying and lying big. Um, And uh, no, no, I I think you have to kill the journalist inside you to to really be freed of that need to be tied down to the facts. Um, But when it came to actually writing The Killing, the actual style of it is so unlike anything I'd ever written before. You know, I tend to write fairly literary mysteries that are set in... Rome and if it's you know it's set in Italy, it's gonna be Baroque, it's gonna have long sentences and gonna have a fairly leisurely atmosphere to it. And you know, there I was trying to write something in Copenhagen that was very fast. So I decided to try to invent a style that was the TV turning into a book. I didn't want to pretend I was writing the book that the TV might have been made out of. I wanted it to read like TV so it has sentences without verbs it messes around with tense it messes around with person and it has that kind of nightmarish sense at the moment that i think the tv story has for me the killing is about people entering a nightmare and trying to find the way out of it and um i wanted to try to reproduce that in the style of the book so it, it was a real experience, a real challenge. It was great fun, and I think it's probably changed the way I'm going to write from now forward, actually.
0: And how much do you think that um, the landscape is a character? I mean, Anne, you could talk about the landscape of the northeast, perhaps, and how much that informs your work. Absolutely. I
2: think that, well, I, I'm a Geordie by choice, not by birth, but I love living in the northeast, and And the same with Shetland, that it's... The northeast is brilliant because it doesn't just have the pretty bits. It's not just the, the hills and the, the beaches that we all love, but it has a big post-industrial landscape too, which is just as stunningly beautiful, I think. And it's that variety of background that gives you a texture that's visual for the television but is also visual for the writer and gives um, that, that just that dark background that you need if you're writing crime fiction. I think that's true. And, and Shetland, of course, is, is very Nordic. It belonged to Norway until the 14th century and has no trees and is just very bare and, and wild. And again, a great background to, to good that jumpers. sort of cryonition. Good jumpers. That's yeah. integral
0: to Nordic noir, isn't it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And
1: even the settings can be malleable. I don't know if people have seen all three series of Volander or Wallander. So you've got Krista Henriksson... You've got Rolf Lesgur, and you've got Kenneth Branagh. And they're all showing the same area, but how different it looks in each, each of the three series. So the Kenneth Branner is very beautiful with bucolic fields and sunsets, and it's very much a, a, a tourist's view of, of, of Sweden, whereas the Krista Henriksen one is flat and urban and rather down. It's the same setting. So that setting has all kinds of possibilities.
0: Who's your favorite, Valander, Barry?
1: <laughs> a week ago, I asked Henning Mankel that very question. <laughs> And every so often one tries to pin him down. And he used to say, well, Ralph Lesko, he is, people have seen him, he's very heavy set. he's slightly inexpressive, he's a very good actor. We saw Krista Henriksen first. We thought he was the first Volander. He wasn't, he was the second Volander. And we've only now seen, and then we've got Kenneth Branagh. There is no answer. The answer's somewhere in the middle, but i go for Krista Henriksen, personally. I was wanting you. Kenneth Brunnar a packet of Kleenex and say, "Look, it's not that bad, mate. You know, <laughs> just cheer up." He looks so this is miserable. The He's rather like I said about Segonoran. How does he hold down that job? Because when one of his assistants asks him a question, it takes him five minutes to answer. He is so screwed up. But don't,
2: don't you think that it was it was Henning Mankell that most of us first came across Scandi crime with? Because I certainly came across him before I did Stieg Larsson. And what? Mankell does brilliantly. I mean, he can be quite preachy and he loses the plot a bit quite often, I think. But what he does wonderfully are those strong visual opening scenes. And again, it's it's quite often landscape based. So in Sidetrack, the young woman running around the field of rape and then setting fire to herself. And the man who smiled, this elderly lawyer going down a small country road and just stopping because there's a big chair in the middle of the road. And that one with the swans or the geese Mm. flying up and just bursting into into flames, that's what that's Mm. what he does absolutely stupendously. Terrific imagery that that hooks you in and using that 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 Scandinavian landscape to the the best possible effect.
0: Have you found David that the landscape? inspires you? I mean, do you find it easier to write, say? In I Copenhagen? have to
3: see the places I'm writing about. With the killing, I went over there and there are three key locations. There's the City Hall where Trills Hartman works, so I spent a lot of time in there. They were very good at showing me everywhere. There's the police headquarters, which is a real place. They shot a lot of the killing, actually, in the real police headquarters. Uh, it's an extraordinary building that was based on the Pantheon, but they never got around to putting the roof on it. So you see, remember that arcade that you keep seeing a walk across? That is the centre of Things. So I spent some time there, went to the homicide department and met two real-life homicide cops who, just like Jan Meyer, walk around with their Walther P-9s on their belts in the office. And, um, but, you know, it is fiction. The, these two detectives, I said to them, so uh, I'm sure they were in front of a computer, I'm sure they were Googling themselves. They had nothing, clearly had nothing <laughs> to do. And I said, so, you know, how big a problem is murdering in Denmark? And they went, well, you know, it's a homicide department, you know, it's a problem. I said, how about some numbers? Because I think in the killing, there's, what, six or seven people get murdered. And they said, well, annually, last year, I think it was 40, 41. So you mean, like, the killing accounted for about one-sixth of the whole murder rate of Copenhagen. They said, no, no, not Copenhagen, 41 for the whole of Denmark. (laughs) And, he, you know, it is, it is fiction. I mean, there was wonderful, scary woods. I went down there, I took the, the, the metro all the way down there, and you can hire a bike at the end from these two little guys who look like wood trolls. They're in a cabin, and you hire a bike. <laughs> and I went down to the spooky wood, which is terrifying on TV, and it's actually a nature reserve, and there were kids having a picnic right where they haul the car out. And it was absolutely delightful. And the Danes, you know, we only think they're gloomy because of Hamlet, really. They're not that gloomy compared to us.
1: Well, no, they're about the same, I would say. (laughs) But um, it's, you know, it's art, it's not the truth. It's even true of Iceland, because a very good Icelandic crime writer, Iyasa Sigurdal Dottir, who I'm sure you've read, I know you've read, she says that in Iceland there is one to four murders a year, and the murders are always incredibly banal. There's some domestic dispute in which... uh, uh, Husband and wife argue, and there is a knife on the kitchen table. It wouldn't make a good crime novel. So, as David says, it has to be fiction. You have to embellish and enrich, don't you? Yeah.
0: There are more murders in midsummer then, than Copenhagen than <laughs> <laughs> every year. Um, and I, I just wondered I, I don't know whether this is just something in my own head, but I imagine crime writers are, are quite a superstitious lot. And I just wondered if you had any special sort of writing rituals. How do you write? No, I started writing
2: when I had two small young. Two. Yes, small children, um, and not a lot of time and work. So I write whenever I can snatch. Half an hour I write, and I love it. And it, because I've been at it a long time and have only become successful relatively recently, it's still an indulgence. So while I'm writing, I still think, oh God, I should be doing the washing or something so it's it's my guilty pleasure still I love it and I I'll write whatever and wherever I can in the train at the kitchen table I l- like getting up early to write so first thing in the morning
0: what about you David because obviously the killing is a doorstopper of a book I mean when you started out you think gosh I've got to get through 800 pages <laughs> I, I, I,
3: I didn't know it was going to be that big when I started out <laughs> but um, you know it's 20 hours of TV and again what, I I try to be really organized about writing. One of the things I've learned from the TV people is that with every book I write now, I create something called a story Bible, which is standard in TV. And a story Bible is just a separate document that lists all of the characters, what they look like, how they relate to one another, all of the locations, and I keep a diary of how I'm feeling about the project as it goes along. And that, you know, that kind, because I'm basically lazy and stupid, I need that kind of organization behind me to remind me what I'm writing about, really. Um, but the, the key thing with the, with the killing was to understand the structure. And the structure of the killing is that you have those three storylines, the A storyline, the B storyline, the C storyline, and you then have a succession of chases. So at the very beginning, you have Nana being chased through the wood by this unseen man. Then you have Lunt chasing Nana. When she finds Nana, she chases the first suspect, then the next suspect, then the next suspect. And each of those chasers, moves across those three storylines and interlinks. And basically, you end up with this huge house of cards. And I cut and cut and cut as much as I could. I cut a whole day out the 20-day story. But you can't remove any of those chasers, because if you do, the whole thing falls to pieces. And so, you know, it was a real learning experience... Seeing all that, but I did cut what I, what I could. The thing I really did cut, I should say this for those of you who are very fond of this sequence towards the end of the killing, when it actually gets too long, it should have been cut a little bit itself. The political story goes on too much, and there's a whole thread in it about Charles Hartman's toilet. I don't know if you remember this, there's some yes. evidence down the toilet. I looked at that and I thought about it, and you know, this is again, I got the agreement that I didn't have to clear anything with anybody, I just thought know why I'm going to have a toilet being a plot point in a book I write. So the whole, if you're a fan of the Charles Hartman toilet thread, don't buy the book. It's not there.
0: Okay. Um, and Barry, before I hand over to the audience questions, I mean, you're such an expert on this whole area, and I just wondered if you could share with us oh, who your tips are, sort of future bestsellers.
1: OK, there's a few names. There's a woman called, and there actually there's no point in my attempting to pronounce the name correctly, because you will read that, any, and I can't anyway. Sarah Bladel, Blyle is how it's pronounced, she's just about to be published again in Britain, very good writer, uh, a writer called Anna Holt, Anne Holt if you like, who has a kind of gay wheelchair-bound detective heroine who is terrific, she's very good. Uh, you should know about U.C. adler Olsen, who writes very tough books, which are shortly to be filmed. All of these people have major films just around the corner. So the, the, oh, there's a writer called Johan Thierin, who is Johan Thierin, if you prefer. Yeah. He writes strange, elusive, atmospheric... He's sli- my
2: favourite,
1: I think. know you, you like him. Yeah. They are slightly fae stories, and they are they're beautifully written. Uh, when I'm asked, how long will the Scandinavian bubble last? For quite some time yet.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh, That was fascinating, all of you. Um, And I'm sure there'll be lots of questions. Um, If you could just raise your hand if you have a question and then wait for the lovely volunteers to come with a microphone, that would be very helpful. Thank you. So any questions? Anyone? My gosh, you've been so comprehensive. There's just absolutely not. Oh, here's one. Hello. Gentleman at the front.
1: How how much of the success of things like The Bridge um, depend upon the fact that the characters are really developed over 20 hours and you really get a feel for them? Is that why they were particularly successful? Would they have worked condensed to a couple of hours? That's a good question, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I I think you're right that time is taken. And as David has done in the book, that's why David had to write a book as long as this because time is taken. And interesting that people say, well, they dispense with all the clichés. Again, I think you'd agree they don't. All the clichés are in there, but they're slightly refracted. They're handled in a slightly different way. But we are allowed slowly to make up our mind about the characters. So Kim Bodnia's copper in The Bridge, I assume a lot of people have seen The Bridge, haven't they? Uh, he's he's the, the Danish copper in the, in, in the Swedish cop. Danish. Danish, Danish cop yeah. in The Bridge. And we're t- we're, it's some time before we, we make our mind up whether we like him or not. And it's, I think, yes, time being taken is the key answer. Uh,
3: also, it should be said that they're not made like normal television. Um, when I started on The Killing in May last year and first met Surin, who was the creator of the series, he was sort of going, oh, you know, I'll, he gave me half an hour of his time because he was working on Killing 3. They were just starting work on that. When we launched The Killing here, in May this year, he was still working on series three. They start shooting these things before they've written the next episode. They don't know how it's, he always says he knows how it's gonna end, I'm not sure, he's got an idea, but he, you know, it's almost like when you're writing a novel, you're making it up as you go along. So it has this kind of semi-improvised flavor to it that you know, if you watch it minute by minute as I've done, you can see that they are making up as they go along because they are horrendous continuity howlers. And you can see that some characters almost shift positions and, and come to be defined later on when they're working out who they are. And the actors within the killing had a very big say in their character, but they would come into work and they would not know if they're playing a good guy or a bad guy. So it's a very, very different way of working. If you tried to pitch that to the BBC, they would throw it out the top floor of Broadcasting House because, you know, it's a ridiculous way to work. But that gives it that kind of flavour. Series 2, of course, was 10 hours of the killing, so they halved it. And it's still a very, very meaty story, but it still worked that way, and I think, you know, that's part of the reason that the characters are so interesting.
1: I don't d- know if Anne would have the... Uh, she could answer this about Brenda Blethyn, that, that Sophie Grubble was supposed to have an affair, her character, with Jan Meyer, her, her, her assistant. And she said, no, she's the one, as you will agree, who got that plot point change. Could Brenda, could, could Brenda Blethyn change the plot Brenda's point?
2: Brenda's of- very committed to the series, so... After the read-through, she, she's already seen the script, and they, and they have a read-through. It's the only time that all the actors really get together because they shoot little pieces at separate times. So all the actors are together, sat around a table and reading. And afterwards, Brenda will always take the script away and go and sit with the script writer and go line by line through the script to discuss points that that they might... I I really don't think she would say this, which is brilliant for me, because it shows a real commitment to to the character that she has. Is it
0: brilliant? Or is it a bit like, you don't know this character, I know this (laughs) character best, it's all in my head. No, they're they're
2: two different Veras. There's the Televera and there's my Vera. And, of course, mine's right, but...
3: (laughs) I mean, you should remember that in Morse... In the Morse books, Lewis was a 60-year-old beery Welshman. He wasn't the ca- he wasn't the sort of pseudo son that he is in the TV series. The TV made that up, and actually made a really nice and interesting relationship. But the books didn't have it, so you know it works but, but both but ways. The books
2: then developed that relationship yeah. because yeah. because Colin liked the the television so much that actually the later books. Morph very much into the television. Did he become characters. younger?
3: I mean, he must have lost 30
2: years. <laughs> he, he, they, it's, it's never mentioned, but he is much more like the television character in the later books. And yeah. are, the irony is that
1: people now talking about Skyfall and saying they found a humanity in Bond, and the self-doubt. Go back and read Ian Fleming. It's all in Ian Fleming. Bond worries about his health. He worries that he's smoking too much. He, he is not just the blunt instrument. Always go back to the books, Elizabeth. Quite right.
0: Are <laughs> <laughs> there any more questions? Anyone else? Can I ask this gentleman here, just in the third row?
1: Yes, I was wondering, how much are we reading the authors and how much are we reading the translators? How much do the translators give to the oh, work? Oh, that's really... That's a yeah. very good question. There. Yeah. In fact, I did say something at a, a, a crime... Joe Esbo, I'd made the point that I'd never read a line of Joan Esbo, who we didn't discuss at all, did we? That's interesting. I'd never read a line of Joan Esbo. I'd only ever read Don Bartlett, who is a star translator, and it's him that we're reading. I think uh, now those translators are starting to have the kind of kudos that they really deserved all along, because they can make or break a book.
2: They can, absolutely. And there are some translators that I really don't like and and won't read their books, even though they're they're probably very good. But then you can blame the translation translation sometimes. So I was talking about a book to my Swedish editor and said, I really didn't get on with this very well, but maybe the translation wasn't very good. Uh, no, she said, we published it and it was a bad book to start with. <laughs>
0: <laughs> because you're a bestseller in Scandinavia, so if actually I do you well, rely... I yeah. do well
2: in Scandinavia, yes, which is, I guess, down to Shetland again, I think. <laughs>
0: <laughs> David, do you have any...
3: Um, well, try, you never know, you always get asked when you're doing a foreign tour, people say is the translation good? And I also say it's actually better than the original because <laughs> um, you've no idea, you know, I've been mean, seen you in Thailand and somebody's asking you, you can't even read the thing. Um, but um, you, are, you are dependent upon the translator. And occasionally people have said to me, you know, this book wasn't translated very well and I'll pass it on to the publisher. But, you know, we are just authors. We have no control, really. We're at the bottom of the food chain when it comes to most and, things. And really, the authors
1: are usually wrong because Stieg Larsson's third book, if anybody knows the Swedish title, is Castles in the Air That Sometimes Blow Up. <laughs> now, do you think that was the right title? <laughs> and even Men Who Hate Women, which is the title of the first book, was the wrong title. Yeah. It sounds like a 1970s feminist. Yeah. Uh, something by Marilyn angry. French, doesn't it? Yes. They were right to change the title.
0: Interesting. Anyone else? i <laughs> have someone from... Um, the lady back there with the glasses, please. Uh, could I have your opinion on Miss Smiller's Feeling for
1: Snow, please? On I'm not sure how I to pronounce
0: Miss Feeling for Snow.
1: It's the one that, well, Anne said that Sherval and Balu started it. Yes, they did. In fact, you can go back even further. Writers like Maria Lang, who was kind of the, the Swedish Agatha Christie, who's utterly forgotten in this country now. But Miss Smiller is really the, the book. That's the Trojan horse book that starts the whole modern Scandinavian. Sherval and Barlow were, were there, and people knew about them. People know about the Martin Beck books, but they were, not, they were not breakthrough. Miss Smiller opened the doors.
2: And I loved it about two thirds of the way through, and then I thought it got mad at the end, and I <laughs> couldn't get the ending at all. Once it got science fiction and weird, it lost me. I agree. But I loved it as, as far as that went,
1: yeah.
0: How old is that book now? When was it first published?
1: So it would be published, let's think, when the date was. 80s. 80s,
0: yeah.
1: yes. And interestingly, okay. it's published by the man Christopher Macleos, who published Stiegel Arsham. Mm. This is a man with his finger on the pulse of Scandinavian mm. crime fiction.
2: And Volander first, didn't he? And Volander, yes. If anyone Winkle Any
0: others? Yes, sir.
3: Thank you. Um, I'm interested to, to know what the, um, the authors and historian think about uh, the effect of tv series has had on actually reading the books like i've hardly read any of the um, series which are on televisions but obviously enjoyed them
1: and i wonder whether they think they've actually increased the number of people who read books or actually suppressed it in you has it been a good thing or a bad thing or no well, difference there's an interesting answer to that is that when um, when ian rankin sold uh, the rebus books to tv i met him at a party, and he said, oh, Rebus is coming to TV. And I said, oh, great, who's playing him? He said, John Hanna. And he must have seen my face fall. And I said, John Hanna, I said, but he looks 20. He still looks 20, even though he's a <laughs> middle-aged man. I said, he's got this slight figure. He does not look like a middle-aged alcoholic, ex-alcoholic copper. Uh, Ian put the best possible face in it. Said, he's a very good actor, and he will act him well. And then I met him again when, when Ken Stott had been cast as, as Rebus. I said, well, now you've got Ken Stott. He said, he's not Rebus either. He is not my rebus. I just have my... And you must have this as well with with Vera. He's not the rebus I have in my hand. But it does get people buying the book. So on a simple commercial imperative, yes, it works.
0: Does it, Anne?
2: Um, I hope so. I would hope so, yeah. I'm sure more people are reading the Vera books now than they were before the television. I hope so. It certainly um, makes your publisher take you a bit more seriously, which is always a good thing,
0: yeah. There were some questions in this general area. It was the guy with the beard. Sorry, yeah. do you <laughs> You put your hand down, no, but, no. but you still have a question. Um it was quite interesting when you were talking about um, why Scandinavian crime fiction is doing well at the moment. I just wondered um I guess Barry might be the best place to answer this, but um, how far that's linked with the rise in Scandinavian horror, particularly Let the Right One In, and Rare Exports, Troll Hunter, things like that, which seems to have happened at the same time. So I thought there might be a connection there.
1: I've got to do a a talk about Scandinavian crime fiction. I've been asked to select a piece of music. It's a strange thing. It's a nightclub event, and I have to do a five-minute idiot guide to Scandinavian crime fiction. It's going to be tough and they asked me to select a piece of music. And I thought, well, what do I do? What do I use, ABBA, Sibelius? And um, I decided to use Joe Nesbo. And Joe Nesbo, of course, has been top. He will tell you that he has topped the charts. He, was, he wasn't just some failed rock singer. He was a highly successful rock singer. So I tried to buy Joe Nesbo's first album, which is now 84 pounds. So I think I might be using ABBA. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, there is that feed through. If, if that was you, I didn't quite catch all you said the feature of all the things like Scandinavian design and so forth, it is all happening at the same time, but I think it's, it's slightly discreet, Scandinavian crime fiction. We don't necessarily think of Scandinavian food or Scandinavian, do we? Do you no, think I don't of? think so. I think,
2: I think it's about storytelling, and we, we like those stories, and we like the gloomy backgrounds too.
3: But I, I, I do think this, this sort of greater issue that... Agatha Christie and a lot of very traditional crime stories are about evil happening in a happy world. And what a lot of Scandi crime does, and I think a lot of people are picking on this generally now, is that it makes the world evil. So if you look at the killing, and to me one of the important threads in the killing is that the reason Lund can't solve that crime is because all of those people around her are just thinking of themselves, the politicians thinking of his career, the school kids are trying to hide what they've done for themselves, the, the police are looking after their own careers. So it's, the whole world is tainted. It's not just a sort of little... It's not just saying bad people are over there and they're just like green fly, you spray insecticide on them. It's actually spread the culpability for a broken society to the rest of us, which gives it a social dimension that I like. Um, that is lacking, I think, in
1: you know, some of the earlier kinds of, of crime fiction. Mm. Mm. Yes, and Sarah is, is somebody we find ourselves shouting at the screen. In the scene where she's at her mother's wedding <laughs> and her mobile phone starts to ring. And you're saying, don't take that call. <laughs> this is your mother's wedding. Give her that, just give her that. So like all the mail cops, she's allowing all that. Although she's kind of, she's our beacon in that in all of these shows there is one character we can link on to who isn't corrupt. Well,
3: actually, your mother's such a monster Why the she turned up for the wedding. Really.
1: <laughs> um, I, I've had some fun with that in Killing,
3: too. I, I, that's all I'm saying.
0: We probably have time for one more question, if there are... Yes. I, think, uh... I was going to ask, you all seem quite
2: cheery people. Don't you find it depressing <laughs> writing these terrible stories about these awful
1: events? They're not really... They're just playing cheerful. They're really gloomy. <laughs> they were miserable in the green room earlier. <laughs> well,
3: I mean, the alternative would be doing a real job, and that, you know, I, I couldn't... That would I would It's really gloomy. Yeah. yeah. I,
2: suppose... I think... It's, it's amazing, isn't it? Because crime writers, it, it's a sort of... Tr- it's the thing that everybody says, but I think it's true. Crime writers are actually the some of the nicest people that I know, and we all get on very, very well, so it's like meeting two old friends in the green room, so... I'm not quite sure, maybe we get rid of all our inner angst on the page and we can just be
1: be very friendly. I think we do happy. get rid of that. We write about violent death, murder and so forth. Things that we would, we would steer away from in real life but there's a kind of catharsis element in crime fiction.
3: It, it's romantic writers you've got to avoid. <laughs> they are evil. Just don't get anywhere near romantic writers.
0: Thank you so, so much, Anne, Barry, and David. Um, it's been a real pleasure. Before we give you a, your deserved round of applause, um, just to say, if you could all stay seated um, while we walk out, and then there's a little room at the back there on the left um, where these three will be signing their books. But thank you so, so much. It's been thank really you. enjoyable. Thank